welcome to episode 8 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this week we're going to be talking about autobiography versus biography. And then I Capture the Castle by Daly Smith versus Guard Your Daughters by Diana Tatton, which I'm very excited about. Um, and I think it's going to, yeah, I'm already predicting that second half is going to be a very difficult and emotional roller coaster for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you, Rachel? I'm very well, thank you. It's a nice weekend, just chilling out with the family. Um, and yeah, not a lot going on really. How about you? Yeah, I am. I'm currently recording this from my friend Paul's house because I am looking after his cat, which I'm pretending is a favour for him and is obviously <laughs> a favour for me. <laughs> um, he's he's sort of a semi-affectionate cat in that he'll spend most of the time just lying on the kitchen table, but then will occasionally come and show affection. <laughs> this is why I don't like cats. I'm sorry, but you know they're very independent creatures. And you never know what they're thinking. <laughs> I mean, mostly what they're thinking is, I'm tired or I'm hungry, I suspect. <laughs> or I hate you. <laughs> and those are the three emotions that I experience most of the time, so I can... <laughs> <laughs> Why well, you get along with them so well? Exactly. Um, and given his propensity to try and put his nose in my mug of tea, I'm, I suspect <laughs> he also loves tea as much as I do. <laughs> well, so much in common. <laughs> Simple souls. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Um, well, I've just finished reading a book I didn't like. Um, it's a Tony Morrison book. His name has escaped me, which is clearly how <laughs> enamored by it I am. I'm like two pages from the end. Um, I didn't love it. I, do you know what? I don't, she's a very skilled writer, but she just, I just feel depressed every time I read one of her books and think, I'm not going to read this again. And then every time I think, oh, I probably should, you know, she's, everyone really likes her, so I'll try again. And then every time I just have the same feeling. So, I've read none of her books, not even Beloved. No, you won't like them. You okay. <laughs> I did Beloved for my A level, and I was just traumatised by it. But mm. um, so I'm I'm currently excited by other books that I can read. I've stolen a book off a child in my class, um, <laughs> and which is looks really good. I said, like, Oh, can I borrow that if you're not going to read it? It's um, Evelyn Pankhurst's biography. Which, oh, that's probably autobiography, biography, oh, I think nice. it's biography, which is a seamless link, isn't it? It is. Um, I'm also just super impressed by the level of education or level of taste of the children in your class. <laughs> I was expecting you to yeah. say some sort of young adult novel. Well, Not the reason that it... I have it is because she read the first page and then realised that she wasn't going to be able to read it, so gave it to me. Bearing in mind, she is French, so um, <laughs> I think it might be a bit complicated, so can I borrow it? She's like, yeah, of course you can. I like, great, okay. Um, so I've got that to read, and I feel under pressure to read it now because I've got to give it back to a small child. <laughs> um, and I've also got The Lake District Murder to read, which was one of my um, British Library crime classics that I bought last time I went to Foil, so I've got to get that one read. And I'm looking forward to that, actually, a bit of light-hearted crime. Nice. Yeah, I do love that series. Um, were what you reading one last time we were talking? I can't remember. Yeah, I was, and I read yes. the, what's it called? For 15, no, 14 guests? 13 guests. 13 guests. <laughs> um, of course, because it's a crime novel. <laughs> um, it, it was good. It wasn't as good as I wanted it to be, but it was good nonetheless. I did think the twist at the end was quite interesting. I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Um, but the rest of it, I was like, come on now. I've already decided who did this, and then we're on chapter two. And I'm normally rubbish at stuff like that. Like I... Every time I read Agatha Christie, I get to the end and think, no, I never saw that coming. Um, but this one, I was like, oh, come on. This is too obvious even for me. But um, it was enjoyable. The period features were nice. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I do find the twist. Everything hangs on the twist. So I'll, I'll be, I don't really care how, what the rest of the novel is like as long as I'm impressed by the twist in a detective story. I I didn't know it was going to come. I thought, oh, there's only one chapter left. Nothing else will happen now. I was wrong. <laughs> well, I have just fin- finished rereading uh, Guide Your Daughters. <laughs> um, what else am I reading? So I, I um, well, the next one I'm planning to start reading is the biography, in fact, of uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner by Claire Harmon, which okay. I really should have read when I wrote a chapter on how am I doing my default, <laughs> but I didn't. Just didn't get around to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I'm right in saying it's been either just about to be or just has been republished by Virago. Oh, really? So I thought I'd read the copy that I already had before. Well, I'm back for shiny new books. I was rereading it for the for the reprint section there, um, or will be. Yeah, she's from what I've read about her already. She does seem a fascinating woman. Um, I don't know much about, or I don't know anything about her childhood. Um, I just really know about her adulthood, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, Do you say the Emily and Pankhurst was autobiography or biography? I think it's an autobiography. I'm going to get it because it's on my bedside table, and I will tell you. it's called My Own Story. Which <laughs> the <an> clue <laughs> is there. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It's autobiography. In Pankhurst's own words on the back. So there we are. So it should be interesting. Yes. <laughs> very, um, it has one of those annoying, I am now a film um, sticker on the front. Uh, which, if they're talking about suffragette, yes. it's really <laughs> not, is it? <laughs> Well, Meryl Streep was in it for about two minutes, so that's a bit of a lie, but never mind. I did love it. I think last time we recorded, it was the day before I was going to go and see it. Yes, and I said that you would love it. And And I did. (laughs) And I come down pro-votes for women. (laughs) That's just me being controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, Meryl. You never do. (laughs) I I don't think anyone sat there thinking, gosh, you've really changed my mind on this topic. (laughs) But but I guess that wasn't the point. Um, so yes, uh, autobiography versus biography. First of all, many thanks to David who suggested this topic on Twitter. We're always thrilled for people to suggest topics because it saves us having to think of anything. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also, very good at thinking of things, so actually it's very helpful. <laughs> um, we still only decided the topic yesterday, so. Well, really, you yeah. decided. <laughs> um, you're very pa- Simon. I'm just going to say this, but in an adorable way, Simon sends me very passive-aggressive texts. <laughs> So have you decided yet? Because it is tomorrow. Like, oh, sorry, no. <laughs> yes, I can read through them being like, just let me know when you've decided. <laughs> Any thoughts? It's going to be this. <laughs> so, <laughs> How about we just do this? Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a side of myself I didn't know existed and I'm ashamed of. <laughs> no, it's because I'm out. awful and very disorganised. So we, we bring out the worst in each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. Well, do you want to, do you want to um, shine your the nobler parts of your character and kick us off with this discussion? Um, yeah, why not? Um, okay, I was, you know, I was just literally five minutes before this we started. I thought, oh, what do I think about this? And funnily enough, I'm actually just teaching this to my year seven class. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a whole unit on autobiography and how people's writing changes depending on what they want people to think about themselves, and. The one of the I was thinking as part of this, one of the reasons I prefer biographies to autobiographies is that biographies sort of have to be objective. Often they're not still, but they are more objective, obviously, than autobiographies. Um, and I also find it really interesting to see 
how other people view people in rather than how people view themselves, if that makes sense. Mm. So um, I quite like um, reading biographies of people who often are dead um, because then it's not just learning about them, it's learning about what the person writing about them thinks about them. And I quite like it sometimes when you're reading a book and you can tell that the person writing about them has become, started to dislike them <laughs> sort of halfway through um, or dislikes other people in that person's life. And you can really sort of see how people manipulate the information they give to you depending on who they want you to root for. Um, whereas autobiographies, I, I find them a bit troublesome because I think you can't not manipulate parts of your life. You can't not try and make yourself sound better than you actually are and it's sort of cherry picking details of your life to say oh look what an interesting it's either look what an interesting person I am or those awful you know like abused child ones that people are obsessed with I don't understand it and it's like oh you know my life could not have been worse and it's like one catalogue of like locked in a cupboard hit around the back of the legs with a belt all this other kind of stuff it's just like I don't want to read this it's not nice and I know that you know yes we need to raise awareness of these things and I don't mean to say that in the flippant tone that just sounded like, <laughs> yes, we do need to raise awareness of these kind of things. And it's very important um, that these things don't happen. But at the same time, I just think these sort of, mi- I think they call them misery memoirs now, don't they? There's they like, do, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I find it all a little bit too, um, it's like, you know, listening in on someone's therapy session. I, I find, find them really baffling because yeah. I completely understand why people want to write them. It must be very cathartic. Yes. Um, but I just don't understand why people want to read them. No, I don't. It's very, it's like intruding on someone's very personal, very damaging experience. And I think I don't understand what the benefit is of this to me. I think great for them, obviously, they want to purge these emotions, they want to tell their story, they want to feel that people understand what they've been through. Great, if that helps them, brilliant. But I don't understand what attracts people to reading about things like that. I it don't. does feel a bit like rubbernecking, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I just, yeah. oh, I'm not really quite sure why you'd want to read that. Um, but yeah, every Christmas, a whole new spate of them comes out. All with identical covers. Yeah. <laughs> well like you know and sometimes there were, I know there was a big I can't remember the exact details of it but maybe you will a couple of a few years ago there was um, a really famous book and he had this guy was on Oprah and stuff was it um, David Pell's um no, no it was else, and it turned out that he'd written this autobiography about these awful things that happened to him and all the rest of it and then it turned out that he'd made it all up oh right because there were yeah there was talk of the fact that David Pell's made his up as well but I don't know if that really? what, I'm not sure what happened there yeah, um, I rem- this guy, I forget the name of the book now, but it's quite famous. The people were absolutely up in arms about it because they said, you know, we've been manipulated. We felt really sorry for him. You know, he's made a lot of money off the back of, of becoming, because I think he became sort of like a motivational speaker saying to people, you know, I've been through this experience and blah, blah, blah. And it turned out he'd made the whole thing up. Wow. Yeah, which is interesting. There's a really good um, novella by Susan Hill on this sort of as a riposte to this um, thing um, called, I think it's called The Beacon, came out maybe five years ago, um, which is about um, a man who has made up a misery memoir, essentially. Or I think, I can't remember if he if he's definitely made it up or if you're not sure if whether or not he's made it up, but it's like the effect on his siblings mm. of this notoriety and like everyone questioning each other and stuff, and it's got a brilliant um, ending as well, a very devastating ending. Um, this is a complete tangent. Can I, get, I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning of talking about biographies, um, which I thought was an interesting sort of, I guess, contradiction in, um, in that they have, which you brought up, that they're supposed to be objective and they can't help being subjective. 
Um, so I think it's really interesting because an autobiography, you know, it's subjective, um, and you sort of you you factor that in when you're going into it. But a biography, I still sort of approach them as though it is like this is these are the facts about this person. This is the, the person, this person's life, and then gradually you realise that someone else could have written something completely different without, with, and both of them would have the same skeleton of truth and neither of them are lying, but they both just choose what to include or what to emphasize or how to interpret things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is why, like, you know, it's okay that we have endless biographies of Austin and Bronte and Hardy and, <laughs> and so forth, I guess. Yeah. Um, it has a different perspective depending on, you know, who you are or what interests you about them. You know, for example, when I did my dissertation on the Brontes, and I was looking up all the different sorts of, you know, books that were available. I was like, blimey, how specific do people want to be in their sort of biographies? It's like, you know, the Brontes and food, the Brontes and yeah. <laughs> uh, walking, the Brontes and this. And everyone was looking at a very specific facet of their lives. Um, and I think people also like, romanticize people that they admire and want to write about. And they want to present them as being these sort of amazing canonical figures and they perhaps give more emphasis to particular periods of their life that demonstrate mm. to be very remarkable and then not much to others. I can't remember if I have said it on the podcast before or not, but um, in one of E.M. Delafield's books, she gives a list of sort of a humorous list of things that writers need to know. And it's all, you know, normal stuff about how hard it is to write and getting seen in public, etc. But then there's two where she says, um, you, you will all, um, at some point or other, every writer has to write a book about the Brontes. And mm-hmm. secondly, um, there is nothing whatsoever new to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, you know, nearly a hundred years ago and people are still, <laughs> yeah, still yeah. managing. Um, in fact, I think Claire Hartman's just writing one about Charlotte Bronte. So there you go. maybe that's why Rivago are republishing, um, the Sylvia Townsend Warner book. Cynic. <laughs> I meant that in a nice way, just you. But yes, also the worst. Um, I feel like I should give some examples of biographies that I have or haven't um, enjoyed. Well, this is the thing I do find disappointing. There's some like Ian e. Delafield. You know, I love her. There's only been one biography written of her, and it's terrible. And I think if someone's written a biography, so I say it again. Why don't you write one? <laughs> See, I, I, the idea of writing a biography strikes, strikes terror into my heart. I can't imagine how anyone does it. It seems no, so I... hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess because Lady Violet Powell wrote one in, gosh, I don't know, maybe seventies or eighties, and um, it's just it wasn't it wasn't very good. Um, it wasn't interesting. It glossed over a lot. The index of her complete novels wasn't even complete. I thought it was very, yeah. you know bare bones here. Um, so. It feels frustrating that that's sort of been done for a while and no one's going to bother doing another one. And yet, you see, if you see what I mean, like, mm. yeah, someone's taken that territory, as it were. Because if, if it's Austin, we can write a new one every year. But if it's someone like Delafield, who's not the most famous person in the world, people will probably think, oh, that someone's done that one. I shan't bother. No, but I suppose that, and also that's the thing with biographies. There has to be an autobiography as well. There has to be a demand for hearing about the life of that particular person. And I think it's quite, um, I mean, often I'll come across biographies of people and think, oh, you know, I've always wanted to find out more about this person. And then I'm reminded of how random and niche my interests are. Um, <laughs> because those books are always like £50 because they've got about seven copies of it because no one actually cares. Like, they <laughs> 
there was I saw one at the back. I'm saying middle age. It's so depressing to say this, but um, at the back of like the Victorian Society magazine <laughs> the other day, they were like, "Oh, there's a new biography of Gilbert Scott coming out," and I was like, "Oh, I love Gilbert." Scott. Oh, at last! <laughs> he had a really interesting life. That's great. And I went on to Amazon. I was like, "Oh, it's fifty pounds. I can't afford that." Um, but it's you know there had there does have to be a demand for it, and I'm sure there are loads of people. In fact, you know what? This is um, I saw a book in the library the other day, and I think it's been actually reviewed on the guardian there's a new book of diaries out called a notable woman have you heard of this oh i haven't but it sounds like i um, like it <laughs> yeah it's a it's a book of diaries of just a perfectly ordinary woman but she kept a, faithfully a diary every day from when she was a teenager up until um she died i think I, pres- I think she's dead um and which was i think i want to say 70s 80s and it's been published um mm. as a kind of I suppose viewpoint through the eyes of an ordinary person of the 20th century and um and apparently it's really good and it's being really well read and I think that's a classic example of how actually I think probably ordinary lives are the most interesting but those are the lives you never read about you read about who've you know done these extraordinary things but then at the same time it's like well the Brontes wrote some books great (laughs) books for sure but, like, what else did they do? You know, pretty ordinary things. And yet, somehow, we've managed to create about a bazillion biographies of them, none of which contain anything particularly earth-shattering. And, again, it's... it's what, Why were those biographies written? They were written to, you know, for the person writing them more than they were for the person reading them, perhaps. Yeah, and if you read um, Nella Last's diaries... I've got them, but I haven't read them, no. That's part of the Mass Observation Project, right? It is indeed, yeah. And what you were just saying about The Lady and Her Diary sounds so similar. Um, and I've I've read two volumes of them. There's, I think, Nella Last War and Nella Last Peace. And then there's also Nella Last in the 1960s, I think, which I've not read yet. But mm-hmm. they're just, they're so brilliant. Um, they are just, she's just an incredibly talented writer. But, you know, she was a, a poor housewife and she, those avenues weren't open to her. Um, mm-hmm. And she didn't believe that someone like her could become a writer which you may at that time it would have been incredibly difficult for her to become a writer but she she used this as a, as a way of writing um just observing yeah i'd say the mass observation project for anyone who doesn't know set up i think actually just before the war but um going to to this day um people documenting their everyday life although now um they as i can say as a member of the mass observation <laughs> um okay. you, you you just get center um, some topics to answer questions in relation to. Yes, I, I as after I read Nella last, I was googling about mass observation and um, Liz, who blogs at oh gosh, adventure. It used to be called Libro Full Time, and it's now called Adventures in Reading, Writing, and Editing. I think. Um, anyway, she she was a, a member, and I got. Um, I didn't it didn't even know it was still going, but I looked up on the website, and they said we would love anyone to join if they fulfil one of the one or two of the criteria at least of. Um, male under 40 and lives outside of london i was like i am all three of these things <laughs> so <laughs> i will i will join oh, wow, fantastic yes i'm i'm actually a few uh, they um, they send stuff quarterly and i think i'm too behind so i need to catch up <laughs> um, but they say they can come in anytime but yeah it's, it's great fun to think that my thoughts will be kept on record for um well, probably to be ignored forever but you know potentially <laughs> to be looked at yeah, in an archive be rediscovered in 50 years time 
what's amusing is that now you're not allowed to identify anyone. So Nella Lash is gossiping about everyone. She writes about her husband at length. And now he's like, you just have to put initials instead of actual people and make sure there's no way you can actually be identified yourself. So I probably, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say I'm a member of it, maybe. Well, you have now. <laughs> They're sweeping in. They're going to drag me away. Oh, I'm getting horribly off topic. So I'm gonna. <laughs> so I'll swoop right back around to um, one of my favourite biographies and autobiographies, if I may, which are the biography and autobiography of A. A. Milne. So um, the biography was by Anthwaite. I think you can probably guess who the autobiography was by. <laughs> but, um, but I think that's really interesting when it's obviously the same person to um, compare the differences between them. And I think the main difference is if. If you were thinking of A. Milne, naturally you'd think Winnie the Pooh as his most famous um, creation and the reason that people might want to read his, um, all about his life. And there's only four pages devoted to them in his autobiography um, and, of, and substantially more than that in his biography. Yeah, that's really interesting actually because I suppose it's, you know, it's great when you've got both and you can compare and with a lot of people you don't get both. So you can't see what their priorities were and how they would have viewed their own life compared to how biographers viewed their life. And I think also that's a problem with biography as well, isn't it? Because a biographer, certainly someone who's coming several, you know, sometimes several hundred years after that person's died and all they've got access to is, you know, some letters and maybe a diary if they're lucky. Mm. Um, You know, how do you decide what was important to that person? You know, you might not even have, like, for example, they might have had a lover who burnt all their letters so they don't know that that person existed and things like that. So I don't think you, either way, I don't think you're ever going to get at the truth, are you? Because the thing is with an autobiography is that person is writing it with the intention of being published and you're never going to be completely honest, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I've also, I've noticed in the autobiographies I read that the, they tend to focus a lot more on childhood than on whatever yes. has made them famous. And understandably, because that's what they're nostalgic about, and that's what perhaps is le- maybe less embarrassing, or or the sort of thing that they want to reminisce about. Whereas um, a biography is much more likely to skim over the childhood quickly to get to whatever made them famous, or yeah. you know whatever revelations they might want to to, to give out. No, exactly. And I think you know that's the interesting thing. Like an autobiography is a completely different perspective to a biography. But I think I'm just trying to think of some more. I really enjoyed Dorothy Whipple's autobiography. It's very hard to get hold of, which is a shame. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's very good. I'm I'm hoping, holding out hope that um, Persephone will republish it one day. You'd think, wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, And I think probably one of my favorite biographies that I've, I've read, which is quite a random one actually, because I'm not even very well read of their books, but um I can't, I'm not going to remember the name of it now. I'm going to Google it right now. It's E.B. White's biography, um, yeah. which was written about, I read it when I was in America, so it must have come out about five years ago. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. It's the best biography I've ever read. And I've right read quite a few biographies. Um, it's absolutely just beautifully written and so interesting. And it it really does bring to life him as a person and reveals how just lovely. It's such, it's such an affectionate book. You can feel how much the biographer really kind of love, loves and respects him. And it's just, he just manages to bring him to life on the page. And I cannot find it on Amazon, which is really annoying. 
Um, I'm going to type in biography, but it's absolutely <laughs> And even if you've never read any E.B. White books, even if you've, you know, you're not a big fan of Charlotte's Web or anything like that, it's a really great. Um, it's here we go. It's the story of Charlotte's Web, E.B. White, and the birth of a children's classic by Michael Sims. But it's a bit of a misleading title because it's actually not massively about the story of Charlotte's Web. <laughs> sneaky. Um, very <laughs> sneaky. I think that's designed to sort of maybe draw Charlotte's Web lovers in. But it's really a lot about how life in New York changed in the sort of in in the 30s, 40s. It's very much about the start of the New Yorker magazine because obviously he was massively involved in that. Um, and it's yeah, he was yeah he was one of the founding um, editors. So and his wife was as well. So it's really really interesting book about literary culture in America, about the changing culture in America, sort of pre post war. Um, and just a beautiful evocation of a wonderful man. He was, like, very interesting and, you know, had lots of, you know, he wasn't perfect by any means, but it's just, yeah, really lovely book, and I was just really drawn into it, and I never felt that way about biography before. I oh, well, you've sold it to me. That sounds great. Read it. It's really good. And I'll tell you about what another biography I really enjoyed was Gretchen Gertziner's biography of... Um, Francis Hudson Bennett? Francis Hudson Bennett, thank you. Mm. Um, which um, I... I have to say I was really quite upset by it because I didn't realise that life had been like that for her. And I mean, she had a very difficult life and I just imagined she'd had this lovely life as, you know, writing her little children's books, mm. you know, and actually it was really, really difficult and it, it was fascinating and absorbing again. And I think someone who's able to write about someone's life and find all these different things, draw it all together, manage to make coherent sense out of it and actually make it interesting is such a skill. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I've not got that. I bought um, Anne Thwaite also did a biography of Frances Hodge Burnett and her biography of Amy Ann is so good that I thought I'll get everything else that she's written and have read none of it. <laughs> Although I did read her short stories, which I've been to review for ages because she sent them to me herself. Oh. <laughs> I had a wonderful conversation with her actually. She, um, she, I can't remember why, but she asked me to phone her. And she emailed me saying, phone me. My, you'll find my number in who's who. I was like, oh great. <laughs> 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 um, which is lovely. It was, she was, one of the, f the people who was very influential in my sort of getting to love books in general when I read her biography of AML. So that was a little joy for me. I was trying to play it very nonchalant. <laughs> um, but yes, I must read one or both of those biographies of Francis Hutchinson Burnett at some point. Um, I love, I also love, and, it, and I guess the difference is perhaps subtle, but memoirs, um, I, I love everything that Slightly Fox published basically. Uh, they do, I don't know if you've read any Slightly Fox, but they do um, short print runs of reprinted memoirs of many different types. Um, my favourites being Rosemary Sutcliffe's Blue Remembered Hills and Daly Smith's Look Back With Love, both of which are about a short period of childhood um, and both of which are very happy. And they, the Daly Smith one, it's all mostly very happy things happen. It's so happy. <laughs> Blue Remembered Hills, she spends most of her childhood in hospital. And, she's, and it's still just like, it's, it's really the antidote to Misery Memoir because lots of awful things happen to her and she's still very joyful about it. Not that people who go through things in Misery Memoirs have to be joyful. They, you know, they've gone through <laughs> horrible things. But it's it's sort of, I guess, refreshing for, for the reader, you know, um, not to be... There's no sense that you're reading it to get some sort of weird pleasure out of someone else's discomfort <laughs> you know yeah you're just enjoying 
beautiful descriptions of of life. So, yeah, and I've not read anything by Rosemary Sutcliffe or any of the Eagle of the Ninth, whatever it is. Um, in fact, I didn't even know she, she, I'd never heard of her before I got this, but, um, but very much loved it. And I, you would definitely love it. You should read it if you haven't. Okay, no, I haven't. No, I will. I'll look that up. Um, <laughs> um, and I think you say memoirs tend to be just about a portion, well, they are just about a portion of someone's life, aren't they? So, um, yeah. that, that appeals to me as well. Although I sometimes leave them thinking I've no idea what, what happened in the rest of your life or even why you wrote this. There was one, another Slightly Fox one, uh, I can't remember what it was called now, but Farmer's Boy or something. Um, and I got to the end of it thinking, you've just described the lovely, childhood in, in the countryside and it's, and I very much enjoy reading it I've no idea who you are so when they look him up and discovered he was like a canon of Westminster Abbey or something but <laughs> I mean I don't think Faith had even been mentioned in the book <laughs> but you know he obviously presumed that his audience would think gosh oh canon whatever your name is can't wait to learn more about your life <laughs> uh, um, I'm Dominic and talk by well, do you want to want to mention one more thing which is interesting about autobiography which I think I generally prefer but I mostly read autobiographies by writers who obviously are good at writing yeah. um, it's when people who, who aren't writers write autobiographies that yeah it can be a bit of a, a, um, a struggle the one I think of is um, Irene Van Brum who was um, an actress in the first half of the 20th century whom I came across because she often starred in the first nights of A.M. Milne's plays um, and so I thought, oh, I'd love to read more about you. Um, it was very workman-like prose. It was not particularly <laughs> okay. Then there was one chapter which was incredibly different, it seemed. It was much more amusing and very well-written. And I got to the end of it, of that chapter, and at the end it said, this chapter was written by my friend J.M. Barry. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very bizarre. That sounds rather strange. So when you're reading autobiography, do you tend to read writers' autobiographies or do you tend to do a mixture? No, I do. Um, in fact, I can't think of any examples of autobiographies I've read that haven't been by writers. Um, no. I read biographies of people who aren't writers. Um, lots of historical biographies and um, biographies of people who were like in, in the arts and things like that, but um, of which I can't think of any examples. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't, I also buy a lot of biographies and then don't read them. Oh, sure. They're yeah. often very long and then yes. that freaks me out. I love a short biography. <laughs> you can get everything you need to say. Oh, I found this with Shakespeare as well. Um, Bill Bryson, I don't think I've mentioned this before. Bill Bryson wrote a very funny book called Shakespeare, um, which basically just says everything we know about Shakespeare, which is almost nothing. Um, rather than all the other ones that just seem to say, we can conjecture this, or other men of this age at this time would have experienced this. Um, I think, yeah, there's no need to just make stuff up, just, just put what we know, and it'll be, if it's a short book, it's a short book. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it short, it's good. Exactly. Everyone will thank you. <laughs> exactly. So if you're pushed to choose, what would you? I think just because I like it coming from the horse's mouth, <laughs> um, autobiography. And yeah, you? I think I have to go for biography. Okay. Yeah. Right on to part two then. That was um, that was fun. I could have talked to Aidis about that. Mm, well, yeah. I did. <laughs> but but needs must. We need to talk about um, I catch the castle and guide your daughters. Mm. Um, I meant to look up when they were published, but it was both both nineteen fifties are they? 
Yeah, God George Waters is after I capture the castle. Yes, quite evidently, as we may discuss <laughs> in a bit. But um, we should not assume that all our audience have read both. So um, I will. Do you, in fact, do you want to go with I Catch the Castle first? Do you want to just quickly say what it's about, and then I'll do the same for Guy George Waters? Okay. Um, I Capture the Castle is told in the first person by Cassandra Mortmain, who's 17 when the book starts. Um, is she 17? Have I made that up? She is 17, isn't she? Oh, I can't remember the exact age, she, but less, think, yes. Yeah. Um, and she lives in a castle in the middle of the countryside with her sister and her brother and the, her stepmother. And Stephen, who's like this a servant who doesn't get paid, so he's, <laughs> he's just there. Um, and their father, who is a writer who's written a kind of modernist masterpiece called Jacob Wrestling, um, and has not published anything since, and spends all of his time in his office or just sort of wandering around, not really doing anything in particular. And <laughs> everyone's aware that he's sort of a tortured soul and mustn't be disturbed. And the stepmother is much younger than him and is also a tortured artist, has a model and likes to be naked a lot. Um, <laughs> and it's basically, they have no money. They have absolutely no money. They haven't paid their rent in years. And um, they're sort of looking for ways out of this situation. And then two Americans arrive who own the castle, who are going to inherit the castle and the surrounding big house and things. And this is sort of the catalyst for a new life for the family. Um, and the, it's hilarious, basically, what happens. <laughs> Beautifully summarised, thank you. <laughs> um, so Guide Your Daughters, published a couple of years later, is, a sh- is in many ways a shameless rip-off of I Capture the Castle. <laughs> so there's more children, there are five of them, let's see if I can remember them all um, having just finished it. So Pandora, Fisby, Morgan, Cressida and Teresa, there we go, <laughs> um, each of... All of them live in, in this house in the countryside, except for Pandora, who's got married and moved to London. None of them go to school. They're all between 15 and 20, but they act much younger. Their father is a writer. <laughs> He's a very famous writer. He is a detective novelist who is, in fact, is still very successfully publishing, and yet still, somehow they still don't have any money. Um, their mother is very highly strung and spends... Her, or in fact, they think she might be going mad. She spends all her time in her room occasionally descending, and she's very protective. She wants, indeed, to guard her daughters. Um, the catalyst for change there is when a man's car breaks down near them, much the same as I catch the castle. <laughs> um, there is a servant, Mrs. Phillips, but I believe she is paid, and she's not particularly important. <laughs> um, all of the daughters are very... Um, artsy. They each have their own gift. So Morgan, who is the narrator, um, is very... Uh, is a is a pianist. Um, there's Cressida, who's very into art- artistic cookery. There's uh, Cressida, oh no, Fisby, who writes poetry. Um, and Tracer is the youngest, who's just well. The only description they ever give her is that she's chubby, but I'm sure she has, <laughs> I'm sure she has other merits. <laughs> um, yeah, that will do, won't it? For a, for a summary. So obviously, I Catch the Castle is rather better known. Um, I read Guide Your Daughters after reading about it in an excellent book by Nicola Humble called The Feminine Middle Brow Novel that was in many ways the basis for my doctoral thesis. It basically looks at the novels between the 20s and the 50s um, aimed at middle-class women, the sort of novels that we love lots now, (laughs) Um, you and I, um, and most of our audience, I suspect. Um, And she often referred to 
to Diana Tutton's um, Guide Your Daughters. In fact, she often referred to Diane Tutton's Guide Your Daughters. I think there must have been <laughs> some editing that went wrong there. <laughs> but um, it, I think there had also been a review on a couple of blogs, and my friend Curzon had definitely also recommended it. But um, you know, it's only after you read a book you realise how many people have recommended it to you yeah. before. <laughs> and I suddenly realised that I should have read it a long time before. But um, And I'd owned it for about five years before I read it, I think. And I very quickly couldn't believe how brilliant it was and how much I loved it and a reread has confirmed that I absolutely love it I think it's wonderful it just just extraordinarily like I Catch in the Castle it invites you into this world that's at once cozy and um sort of menacing I guess there's definitely things that aren't right there it's not this this idyllic or um idyllic land where nothing can go wrong you're you're sort of on edge the whole time and, and yet you don't want to leave that environment. You want to stay with those people in that castle or house. Um, and it feels quite painful to leave it at the end. I don't know. Do you feel the same? Yeah. No, I mean, to be honest, I don't think, I mean, I know some people would say, yeah, you know, it's a shameless ripoff of I Capture the Castle. Yeah. I mean, in many ways it is for sure. But um, <laughs> it's also, it does stand alone very much. Um, mm. And it's, really what I think is really well written I thought it was hilarious when I read it mm. um and I also think it's really I think it's a little bit darker maybe than I Capture the Castle and certainly the mother is quite a um I actually would say kind of menacing figure mm. um because she is quite dangerous in many ways and that's kind of skirted over but at the same time it's there if you want to find it um and I think it also raises lots of questions about, you know, well, what can girls do apart from get married and that kind of sense of them being very trapped in their surroundings with nothing really to do. It's it's quite, you could call it feminist in some ways, I think. Yes, I think I think um, there's definitely aspects of that, even if their solution, well, maybe it's weird. It's, like, it's either saying their solution is to get married or it's highlighting the fact that their only solution is to get married and things need to change. <laughs> so, I like to read it yeah. in that way. The fact that yeah. this man and they're all sort of run, running for him because this is their one way out. It's, you know, it does reveal the very claustrophobic and limited world that women were faced with in the 50s. You know, it's like in I Capture the Castle. How are we going to get any money? Well, Rose is going to have to get married. And it's like, well, that's the only way that anything can happen. Is someone's going to have to marry somebody and that somebody's going to have to have money. And it is that dependence on men that I think both books really discuss in quite a lot of detail um absolutely and and i think in both cases perhaps more in i Catch the castle there's a sort of the narrator is more aware of how awful that prospect is than some, yeah. some than the other characters thinking not you know especially yeah in Catch the castle she's thinking rose does need to get married i think this is um it's quite painful to watch the desperation that she has to, to flaunt herself before these people, but it's but it has to happen, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Um, because one, indeed, as Agatha says, cannot go on the streets in rural Suffolk. <laughs> so. And also, in both novels, neither of these, none of these girls have actually had an education, so there's mm-hmm. literally nothing else they can do. They're not qualified for anything, and it's that lack of you know, forethought or any need for women to have anything else to do. Like their brother goes to school in I Capture the Castle, but Rose and Cassandra haven't been to school. And it's like, well, why did nobody think that they might not, they might need to? Oh, yeah, because they're just supposed to get married. Like there's no need for them to go to school. There's no need for them to have any skills when actually there is a need for them to have skills because what else are they going to do? If they don't find someone to marry, 
And this is one of the main sort of propellants of the plot in um, in Guided Autism is the discussion over whether okay. Teresa should or should not go to school. Um, at the age of 16, apparently, it's time yeah. to start thinking about it. <laughs> uh, um, which, uh, the reason, you know, I mean, she doesn't want to because she enjoys being there, and you discover that the reason she hasn't is because the mother can't bear any of her daughters to leave the house, essentially. Um, it does, so it's quite painful in that way, but it does lead to some very amusing scenes. Um, and I think this is what something that Gadgetis does very well as a sort of uh, set piece, humorous set pieces where, um, she goes to the nunnery to learn French or she has to play French cricket um, because she needs to do games which she isn't doing at school both of which are extremely amusing <laughs> um, and it is a very very funny book as well as being quite dark um, I do love books that are both funny and dark like Miss Hargraves <laughs> so, so that's my taste <laughs> um, yeah and I catch the castle very funny as well um, we sh- I should <laughs> point out for yeah um, some very great one, good one-liners in there. I think for me, I prefer I Capture the Castle. I'm going to say this now um, because I find it more the narrator, Cassandra's narration is so endearing and she so perfectly captures the voice of a 17-year-old. Um, and I think that's actually very difficult to do as an adult to recreate the voice of a teenager. It's practically impossible. I always find it kind of embarrassing when I'm reading young adult novels written by adults and they're mm. trying to like get down with the kids by sounding like a 13-year-old. I'm like, you just... <laughs> It's clear you don't spend a lot of time with them because they really don't talk like that. Um, but it is that kind of that conscious, like she, they, she's called consciously naive. She is. She's conscious, very self-conscious, but she's also, she knows that she's naive and she sort of plays on it, but at the same time, she doesn't really know what to do with it. And it is that aware, self-awareness without any awareness of, of how, of, of really, of life that's really interesting. Mm. Um, and it is really interesting stage of life being that age and Cassandra's awareness of how difficult things are going to be but also the fact that she's she is naive and that she thinks oh everything will be fine and you know she doesn't really know how to cope with things she doesn't really understand what Rose is going through but she thinks she does but she actually doesn't and um so I just yeah I think it's a really cleverly written book that's funny but also quite moving in many ways and I don't think that Guard Your Daughters has that same emotional complexity or level of endearingness in its narrator to make it something that I'd want to read again and again and again and again if you see what I mean like I captured the parcel I really what what do you think of the way that she depicts uh, the teenage narrator do you think it's successful well, in, in, um, in Guide Your Daughters? Yeah, I mean, I think it's successful, but I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's a conscious copy of I Capture the Castle. It does work still on its own, but I think it doesn't feel as fresh or as original as I Capture the Castle. It's very much like, oh, I want to create a novel about, you know, how funny this house of five girls is. And I think also the five girls thing, you're missing something with having all of those sisters. I don't think you get as much um, character development. You don't get as much insight into things. Um, There's definitely an extent to which she's um, borrowing from Nancy Mitford as well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. that, yeah. It's a bit clichéd, I think, whereas I don't feel that I Capture the Castle is clichéd. Um, I actually think was, I find more emotional, um, maybe not development, but just undertones in, in Guided Daughters because... I catch the castle, you get this, well, I get the sense that they've been through a lot, but ultimately 
aren't that damaged by it at the other end. I don't know if you agree with me there, but um, whereas Guided Daughters, um, it's sort of, um, you realise how destructive the mother's attitude has been on all of them. It's got a very powerful last page, which I, I just read. Um, and then a similarly powerful last page in, in I Capture the Castle, but that's more about romantic love, whereas this one is about sort of the end of the end of being a child and the um and how a family unit can't stay together forever because of the people growing up and the the effects of selfish selfishness of one person on others and these sorts of things it ends quite devastatingly because like, you go along throughout Guided Daughters thinking this is a a funny fay novel and then it, you I felt like the the rug was swept under my feet even on the second time round I felt the rug was swept from under my feet yeah no it is quite hard hitting I think and I think it's quite um. Psychologi- I think it's more psychological than I Capture the Castle, definitely. Because um, the mother is, even though the father in I Capture the Castle has obviously got serious issues, they don't. Mm. <laughs> but I think the girls are quite self, um, self-supporting and they are quite sensible and Topaz is there to support them. Whereas I feel like in I Ca- in Guarded Daughters, both parents are very absent. Um, and I think that sense of them sort of being abandoned to two parents who are so wrapped up in themselves that they can't be really focus on their children or their children's needs. It's kind of very modern in a way, really, that logical mm. awareness of the impact of parents' behaviour on children. I don't think that's explored as much in I Capture the Castle. I mean, it's there beneath the surface, but it's not as, as avert as it is in Guided Daughters, certainly. I also, yeah, I do find, I love I Capture the Castle, but I find when they go away from the castle, when they go to London, it, for me, it loses some of its... Oh, it's way of it. But then I love when the things set in London. So <laughs> maybe that's the problem. I, you know, we, we remember our urban rural discussion. <laughs> I, I, I think I just, I don't know. I just feel like she lost her way a bit in that section. It didn't have the same draw for me. But um, well, I think it's yeah. great because it shows how you know it's it's the dream, isn't it? And um, Cassandra's realization that actually having all that stuff and having the bright lights and the money and the fancy hotels and the nice clothes and all the rest of it this dream of what she thinks adult life will be like, which will be all this glamour and city life, etc., isn't really what she thought it was going to be. And I think you need that contrast to get that message across. Yeah, I get. I suppose I get that. It's just, it's just when it's like, then I met a dwarf in a cafe. I'm just like, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> why Why is this happening? <laughs> but, yeah, it's definitely could have done with some pruning. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are sections of it that I'm like, really? But um, I remember teaching it and I'd be like reading chapters and be like, oh, nothing's happening in this chapter. And I'm getting really <laughs> bored and I probably shouldn't have tried to teach this to year eight. But, um, you know, yeah, it is a bit bloated. I think that's what's quite nice about Guardian Daughters. It's a more manageable length, and it does get to. It's much. I think it's more tightly constructed. Yeah, and and just yeah, I, I think I said this. We talked about the L-shaped room. Um, that I can get quite fixed on on a place or like a building, and I want them all to stay there. <laughs> so once I get sucked into that environment, I'm quite attached to them staying there, and I quite like Guardian Daughters. That, we don't. We, they go to London. But we don't see them in London. They, yeah. we, we just get the effects of it, um, as it were. Um, have you read anything else by either of them? No. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll take this one then. <laughs> um, I have read. Well, I, I as I said, the autobiography of Dodie Smith. I've read a couple of them. She wrote. She wrote four. But um, I also read uh, the Town in Bloom. A Town in Bloom. Oh. Yeah, those reprints that they brought out. Yeah, um, it was no one here is good, but it was quite enjoyable. It was all about the acting scene. I do love stuff set in the theatre, but um, I don't know. I can't work, put my thumb on 
put my or indeed my finger on why it was not um <laughs> <laughs> why it was not as good but maybe it was the lack of such a convincing and um engaging narrator because that is what makes I Catch the Castle so brilliant I think is is the narrator yeah um, and Diana Tatt and I did read read Mama, which I had to read in in the library because copies of um, there was only just very scarce. So say it again. I said they're unavailable completely. Oh yes, there's one copy of Mama at the moment, which is about forty pounds, I think. Um, there's no copies at all of the young ones that I've been able to find. Uh, Mama is much more earnest. Um, I was reading rereading today actually a review that Barb at Leaves and Pages wrote of Mama, and she preferred it to Guided Orders, and she wrote a very very good review of it um, about. Uh, 18 months ago um, it's all about a love triangle between a woman and her daughter and her daughter's husband oh so, so there you go it's not, it's not as saucy as that sounds <laughs> 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 but um, it's in fact it's very like it is very um, earnest yeah it's very it's quite plaintive in some ways in fact it doesn't have the same jolly, jolly spits that guy daughters it's just the <laughs> sort of emotional bits <laughs> I know, in fact, I was talking to Nicola Bowman about them both a while ago, and I think she maybe even prefers my mom, um, although she does like them both. Whereas the young ones, I only discovered from Barb's review, is about incest, apparently. So, yeah. um, I'd be very intrigued to read that. Those are the only three that she wrote. And Guardian Autist is the only one that's available for, you know, um, easily. In fact, when I first... When I first blogged about it, I was so enthusiastic about it that you know, people went out and bought it. You <laughs> um, did. You caused a massive <laughs> rush on them. Yes. And it's one of those books where I loved it so much, I thought everyone will love this. Um, and then a lot of people didn't. Or a lot of people did, in, um, including me. But um, the one I, I can remember, lovely Claire, a, a captive reader, um, I thought this is Claire, this is perfect work for Claire. She'll love it. And then she really didn't like it at all. I was <laughs> heartbroken. <laughs> But you can't please everyone all the time, Simon. Mm, you can't. Not. I'm just, part of me hopes that one day she'll just sort of be midway eating a meal or something, or just drop her fork and be like, "No, wait, it's brilliant." You <laughs> should read this again. <laughs> but you know, I, I made my piece with the fact that it's, it's like Howard Zendel is on the landing all over again, which I thought everyone would love, and then some people didn't. <laughs> but it was it was very gratifying to see lots of people reading it and enjoying it. Um, you brought something back, Simon. I would never have heard of it otherwise. It's true. So yes, um, Nicola Humble um, with with her book started off something indirectly. <laughs> literature. Yes, <laughs> and at that point, I remember because lots of people bought them. I remember the price shot right up. There were various sellers who were obviously listing it in more than one place. They were cancelling orders all over the place. Now you can get it for seventy nine p on Amazon. I just looked at. So you know, anyone listening who's thinking, "Gosh, I won't be able to get a hold of that," you will. It's <laughs> but um, but obviously, well, sadly, not in print. Um, I think there have been a few attempts recently to bring it back into print that haven't quite panned out. Yes. But I live in hope that one day it will, or if not, when it's out of copyright, someone maybe I'll do it when it goes out of copyright. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think it does deserve to be. I think it's such a lovely book. I agree. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I find it in fact some ways hard to quite work out why it's not as successful as I Catch the Castle, because I can understand people preferring one of them, but I don't think they're that different in quality. That as one of them has come this huge, like lasting, gen- multi generational success, and one of them more or less died in the 1950s. Well, you know, this is. The story of literature, isn't it? Why yeah. some great books 
people by the wayside and others stay in print that perhaps aren't as good. We just don't know. I mean, the thing is with Dodie Smith is, you know, she was already famous for 101 Dimensions and all the rest of it. So of course, yeah. she already had yeah. a profile, whereas I suppose Diana Tutton never had a profile. So, I mean, clearly, I mean, her book was chosen for the reason why there's so many copies. It was a Reader's Digest or Reader's Society choice or whatever. So Yeah, the Reprint Society, <laughs> which I've never heard of outside of this book, actually. But, um Oh, there's always tons of them in pictures. Like they, they, Elizabeth Byrne, they used to do her, and that's different people. So, I mean, she was clearly popular enough at the time to have been picked for that. But again, it's true, yeah. And that was only just looking in the front cover of my copy now. It was only a year after it was first published. Yeah. But, um, but yes, they, the, obviously, no one picked up the next two books. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, if she wrote about sort of slightly more niche topics afterwards then she hasn't had a chance to build up her reputation but maybe if it gets republished and you get the comparisons because I actually think that would make a really good film that book yes I think it would be lovely and, and I captured the castle I very much love the film oh, of that oh yeah um which a lot of people don't like but I think I think it's the best thing that Romla Garay ever did yeah I think it's great I know, what happened to her, bless her? She keeps popping up as, like, second... Or she's in Suffragette, in fact. She popped yes, up that's very briefly. Yeah, she gets... She, she's For a while, she she lost all her roles to Keira Knightley. Now she at least seems to lose them all to Kerry Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but she does... Oh, she's, yeah, she keeps doing things. But I think she's obviously decided to do the, like, fairly big things, but not a big role, rather than, you know, big things in small films. She did... Um, she was the lead in the in Angel, the adaptation of Elizabeth yeah, Taylor's novel. Yeah, that was that, she was very good in that. I thought she is. She's always very good. I she's think. Very good actress. I saw her in the theatre recently. Oh, in um, was it, I see like it. Or, yeah, she's you know. the best thing about it. Oh, we should get her on. Didn't she do a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she would. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, well, are we going to make a choice? I feel like you've made your choice, and I've made mine. Well, I f- yeah, I I think I am going to go with Guide Your Daughters. I'm surprised by this, to be honest. Well, I think it's partly because of that bit in London that I don't love in I Catch the Castle, and partly because I'm I'm perversely drawn to books that aren't as popular. <laughs> but, um, I but it is. I, I hope I haven't made it sound like a very easy choice because I do love them both so much, and I I would find it very hard to choose between them. But do. You, just fall down on the side of Guide Your Daughters. Well, I'm, I, I'm an eye capture the castle girl all the way. Nothing comforts me more than that book. I love it. Uh, so we have been in complete disagreement. In, it doesn't in, often happen, actually, does No, it, it doesn't. Yeah. But very amicably. <laughs> Respectfully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I think, yes, since in neither case we, we didn't hate anything out of all out of them. <laughs> so, uh, Great. Um, now, with that sort of weird level of preparation, actually knowing what we're going to talk about, we're now reverting to norm with not having not a clue what we'll be talking about next time. Um, Maybe but... we could do something Christmas-themed, Simon. Oh, what a good idea. Hmm. Um, we can have, to mull that. have to mull that over. Mull. Get it? Yes, mull. so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've not had any mulled wine this year, actually. No, I haven't. I'm, I'm not participating in any Christmas themed food until December I'm putting my foot down though my mum has sent me home today with mince pies uh, I did have my first mince pies the other day but I was driving so I couldn't have the mulled wine <laughs> <laughs> I do love mulled wine so uh, I, I will be having my first mince pie 
<laughs> Glad to hear it. Well, I think we probably should have finished some minutes ago. We're just going up into Christmas foods we enjoy. But no, something Christmas themed for next time, or maybe the time after that, depending on how how uh, quick at editing I am. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. Okay, cool. Thanks, everyone. Bye.